Well, good evening. Good people. Yeah, hurry, hurry up. All the way around. Don't stop. Complete the circle. Yes. Welcome to Emmaus Way, faithful few. Uh, yeah, glad that you're here. We have to call us together tonight this um, note to Wake Forest Divinity School. Molly, would you like to explain a little bit about the context for, yeah. Uh, yeah, the dean of Wake Forest Divinity School um, passed away yesterday. Uh, she had brain cancer, and I was just sort of thinking about this series and how really she was pretty influential in how she taught and led that divinity school and how I even started thinking about bearing witness reclaiming kinship. And when I, this is a letter short to the alumni. Summers ago, kind of in the midst of her battle with cancer and the systemic injustice going on in the world. So, anyway, that's, that's that. So, these words from our sister Gail O'Day. But thanks be to God. There is also the voice of love and justice. No matter how often this voice seems at risk of being silenced, at risk of being too still and too small among all the clamor and the hatred. So my prayer and hope for each of you, for all of us and for the world, which reels under the cost of this hatred, even when it doesn't know it, is that we will continue to be convicted that there is a better way. We are children of a God who has shown us over and over again that love is more powerful than death. The resurrection shines a beacon that new life and fresh hope is always possible, and that the struggle between life and death, love and hate, is the struggle of human existence. We're called to live in the hope because to live any other way is to say that love is not real, that love has no power. And we are called to be witnesses to the love of God that cannot be overcome by hatred and that will carry us forward in hope toward a justice-filled future. We lament, we mourn, we will seek justice, and we will love. Amen. Rody, would you like to come and lead us in a song? Yes. So you can help us sing. But we've been learning this new community song week by week. And I wouldn't dare do it without you. Sing it down there. That only works for hymns. All right. Should I sing it again all by myself? You think? Okay, good. I feel like that is true as well. Okay. Let's let's just try it. We'll see how it goes. All right. For everyone born, a place at the table. For everyone born, clean water and bread. A shelter, a space, a safe place for growing. For everyone born, a star overhead. And God will delight when we are creators of justice and joy, compassion and Yes, God will delight when we are creators of justice, justice and joy. That was great, everyone. Back to you, Ben. I think you taught some people that song. Mm, yeah. So, uh, yeah, if you haven't been tracking closely what we're up to in this fall, we, I think this is week four of talking about tables. Um, as part of a year in which we've taken on um, a desire to 
bear witness and reclaim kinship as a community in, in the world we find ourselves in. And we've got a really, Clinton on the way in, yeah, he was really excited to be here because of this text. Like, yeah, like this is a very exciting text as a kid. I, yeah, that Jesus threw over tables and stuff, you know? I mean, that's, yeah, there's not often that much action packed things to talk about. So that's what we have in front of us tonight. Um, in terms of things happening in the community, I wanted to say again that pub group is very slowly getting into um, a read-through of Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. I think last week we technically were up through chapter three, but still a good opportunity to read that along with people in the community that are reading it or come out on Thursday nights and talk about it. Um, I had not read all of it, um, and it is a drop-dead fabulous book thus far, um, and, and just spot on to what we've been talking about on Sundays. So that's a plug for that. Anything else? Yes, Tim's party, Tim and Mimi's party is coming up. There are multiple ways to help make it happen. Um, one is financial contributions. If you want, you can go online, and there's a separate tab, or if you have a check, you can put it in the memo line. But other really big ways, Caleb sent through the UA Social this fabulous Google form about ways to help Thank you, Molly Elizabeth. Anything else going on oh, yes. that people would mention? I have another one, sorry. You've already had one, I'm sorry. Uh, the cans, there's a really important can venture council meeting this Thursday at 6 o'clock at Trinity Avenue Presbyterian. Um, we will be talking and solidifying the action, the can action, which is Saturday, October 27th. But if you are free and available to come Thursday, Besides Molly, having to know. Okay. Well, in that case, Adam, yeah, come up. Adam is what? This is like time three or four. I mean, it's getting to be a lot. And yeah, we're really excited about the ways that yeah, you're introducing new musical voices, and tonight is a great example of that. And I think these are yeah, such an interesting set of songs to put up against this text. And feel free to tell us about the ways in which you think they're interesting. I was kind of hoping to not say anything <laughs> and just like let them sit and then in the dialogue kind of unravel them a little bit. Does that sound interesting to everybody? You're the man with the mics. 
men with mics. We shouldn't listen to them as much. Um, Okay. Yeah, bless this mess. God bless the man who stumbles. God bless the man who falls. God bless the man who yields to temptation. God bless the woman who suffers. God bless the woman who weeps. God bless the children trying her patience. Trouble getting over it is what you're in for so pour yourself another cause it'll take a steady pair of hands holy or unholy ghost well now i can't tell but either way you cut it you should get some distance if you plan to make a stand the house divided God bless the weeds in the wheat God bless the lamp lit under a bushel and I discovered hell to be the poison in the well so I tried to warn the others of the curse Then my body turned on me I dreamt that for eternity My family would burn Then I awoke with a wicked thirst By my baby's yellow bed I kissed her forehead And rubbed her little tummy Wondering if she'd soon Despise the smell Of the booze on my breath Like her mom Through a darkened mirror I have seen my own reflection And it makes me want to be A better man God bless the man at the crossroads God bless the woman who still can't sleep God bless the history that doesn't repeat uh, So one of, the, one of the things I like about this text I will probably say this about any text about Jesus though I'm always going to read it like this, I think, uh, is the, 
the kind of scandalizing disorientation of Jesus' behavior, especially for those who are in power, who are trying to be like, yo, do you hear what these kids are saying? How are you not, um, how are you not correcting this? This is terrible. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm interested in what it means to be disoriented in our confrontation with Jesus and our confrontation with other humans, how we become a stranger to ourselves, to the world and systems of meaning around us and to uh, our conceptions of God. So in that sense, we're going to try and sing this one together. If that last one was hard, this one's even worse. Here we go. I am a stranger here below And what I am is hard to know My heart is cold and dark within I fear that I'm not born again When I experience call to mind, my understanding is so blind. All feeling seems seems to be gone. It makes me think that I am wrong. If I forget your name if I forget your name if I forget your name what will I do to seldom I can ever see myself as I would wish to be what I desire I can't attain from what I hate I can't refrain and everything's alright yes everything's alright yes everything's alright yes everything's all right, yes, everything's all right, yes, everything's all right, yes. And um, my preoccupation with a disorienting Jesus uh, leads me to a kind of preoccupation of the... makes me wonder about how we could think of things like the fear of God, the fear of being disoriented in our... the fear of being unsettled in our confrontation with God. Um, 
whether God comes to us in ways we would anticipate or not. So in, in that sense, um, yeah, I'd like to sing this next song. When I light your darkened door When I light your darkened door When I light your darkened door Will you curse the day Your name breaks on my lips When your name breaks on my lips When your name breaks on my lips Will you know the sound
Thanks so much, Adam, um, for those songs of prep. Ooh. Yeah. Thank you. Especially the last one, I think, in a lot of ways, gets at the heart of today's text um, that we are looking at of Jesus flipping the tables in the temple. Um, but before we get to that, we're going to pass the peace. But I just want to say it's so great to be back with you. It was wonderful last week celebrating Jenny Nicholson's wedding to George. Um, and then I was in Boston all week long um, with a bunch of Baptist pastors who kept on saying, you're at that exotic church now, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, having to explain Emmaus Way to 35 um, Baptist pastors over four days, um, it, was, it was fun. Uh, it, was, it was a really good time, but yeah, I just laughed. You're at that exotic church now, aren't you? Um, so that's what the Baptist think of us. Um, but anyway, we're going to pass the piece, grab some fabulous snacks that are back there, some water and coffee, and we'll get back in a few moments. And it doesn't take long to realize this is a quaint Emmaus Way gathering tonight. Um, and I really hope we're going to talk about the text. So don't be afraid to speak out tonight. All right. All right. Um, if everyone would kind of come back to the middle space, I may even ask if you like are sitting on the second row and would want to slide up to the first. No pressure to do so, but um, the offer, the invitation is there. Um, oh, man. And I, yeah. I'm wondering if people could hear me without, I'll keep this, the mic. So um, tonight we're flipping tables. I'm really excited that Clinton came because of this text. That makes me happy. Um, and some might say, right, we've been flipping some tables merely by we as a community trying to bear witness and reclaim kinship. Um, but our text today hopefully gets us thinking even more about what tables Jesus flipped is still flipping, and what tables we are being invited um, by the gospel to flip. In a world where women are still not believed for speaking their truth, and where entire races and classes of people are being erased in life and in death, and when corruption rules over powerful leaders, religious leaders included, and our economics continue to allow the rich to get richer and the poor to be trampled, there's still far too many upright tables in need of flipping, I think. Now a bit about our text before we dive in to sort of locate ourselves and where we are in the gospel. Um, so many scholars suggest that Jesus planned his entry into Jerusalem. So right before this was the triumphal, triumphant entry into Jerusalem as a deliberately prophetic act um, to, that was intentional and highly provocative. Because right before our text today, if you kind of remember back to Holy Week, right, Jesus entered the city like a king who had come to claim his throne. And for a moment, with people shouting and waving palm branches and little children singing, many thought that he might do it, right? 
He might claim a throne where the forces of economic exploitation and political expediency would retreat. And he might be the new king in the way the people thought. However, at the last moment, or perhaps it was premeditated, um, he doesn't. He doesn't claim a throne and instead makes his way into a temple, which is where we are today, and then later walks toward a cross, which happens right after this text. And it's important to remember, I think, that the scribes, Pharisees, and chief priests all enjoyed relative autonomy within the Roman Empire. Um, Therefore, religious leaders, the folks gathered in the temple, had a stake in keeping the peace instead of accommodating would-be messiahs like Jesus and Jesus, what some might call rebel-rousing followers. Because such an uprising, right, something to happen in the temple or such an uprising um, inevitably brought Roman violence against the Jews and threatened their fragile, what some would call their fragile status quo, right? So Jesus as threat to status quo was scary. So when Jesus um, first walked the city being praised as Messiah, and then went to the table, went to the temple and turned over the tables of the money changers and the dove and drove out the merchants. Um, It was, in fact, a highly provocative act that made a lot of people really uncomfortable and pissed off, um, in large part because the status quo was being threatened. Um, I think that this text really open, opens wide uh, Father Gregory Boyle's assertion um, throughout both of his books that the strategy of Jesus is not centered in taking the right stand on issues, but rather standing in the right place. And so it's kind of what we have going on. But would someone with that sort of frame read the text for us? It's only five verses. Then Jesus entered the temple and thrown out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he cured them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the amazing things that he did, and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. He became angry and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. He left them, went out to the city of Bethany, and spent the night there. Matthew 21, 12 Thanks so much, Sarah. So, curious, what immediately grabs your attention about this text? About this table that we find Jesus around? About the people around the tables? But like, what just immediately strikes you? We talked about anger a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The anger that is present around these tables and how we talked about anger yeah, two weeks ago, and how anger isn't an innately bad right thing. Others, what else? 
Besides the flipping of the tables, the fact that he drove out all who were there, like drove, he did more than just flip a table, driving yeah. everybody. Like there's, yeah. there's, there's a lot of other stuff going on. For sure, right? And so kind of, and what's interesting is so really where this, that's so true, Dave, of how, right, doing more than just flipping a table but driving out the people. And so where this would have happened is actually like kind of in the courtyard area as you're entering in the temple, and that's where people gathered. So a lot of people would have been gathered there. And so the fact that he drove out, probably not even dozens, right, but like could be hundreds of folks through his action, a lot was going on. Yeah. Others, what strikes you? Yeah, Joy. I think it's interesting that the children recognized right away who he yeah. was. And, um, you know, they just, they just knew. Mm-hmm. And so often, you know, I think children are silent because mm-hmm. they even don't think they know. But they knew right away who he was. It was the kids who knew, not the adults, who Jesus was and what he was about. Thanks for that, Joy. Anything else? Does anything about, like, money strike you? I mean, it's, <clears throat> there's lots of things that, like, this is such an iconic story. It's funny, if things that I swore were in here or not, like whips. Mm-hmm. I don't but, um. There are some in one translation. I do believe, like, in one gospel telling. But the money thing is interesting. When I read this as a kid, you know, as I told it on the way in, like, was this everyone's favorite story when they were a kid at some point? Um, but the way I imagined it was so different because mm-hmm. the temple was like, okay, I went to church, and so I was like, well, why would people be in there with money? Of course, yeah. right? It seemed like such a crazy thing, and so, and now, thinking about it, it seems much more disruptive, not only because I have a, a clear vision of like what that situation was, but even traveling and going to places where, you know, different cultures where they do have temples where people sell things, and it makes sense, right? Like, that's part of what's going on there. Um, But yeah, how that was the thing that, you know, this person who got angry at other places in the Gospels, but this is probably the most violent of any act, Mm -hmm. maybe the only violent acts from him that money was what set everything off is, I don't know, interesting and compelling, that money is what set him off was quite interesting yeah no I think that's true I think it's true any other thoughts on like what initially strikes you about this passage I I had uh, my initial reaction was probably like confusion or Mm -hmm. questions about around the priests yeah Um, it wasn't clear so maybe you have some maybe you can clarify like are the priests asking, do you know what these are saying in terms of like, do you know people are saying you flipped tables earlier today or was it more along the lines of like the healing and the acts that have, that followed? And like, mm-hmm. what exactly did the priests have issue, take issue with? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't totally know because I wasn't there, but um, a lot, of different scholars, right, kind of throughout the gospel, this notion of the priest being really threatened by Jesus um, being so different than their presumed assumptions of, right, who a Messiah might be, what a Messiah might do, the fact that Jesus was healing those um, who should not be healed, hanging out with 
the outcasts, the downtrodden, um, rather than caring about things like temple sacrifice and purchasing um, doves for sacrifice and things like that. So that's more. That's more of it. You know, what Jesus' relationship with the priests and scribes were, uh, you know, uh, I remember, uh, you know, stories of, like, his youth, youth or infancy or, you know, like when he was younger, being always being in the temple, being yeah. in the temple. And so, you know, what's yeah. he, Oh, Jesus is back. Yeah, yeah, for sure, right? I mean, because Jesus was raised in the temple, right? He was raised by rabbis and hearing these stories and participating in these rituals and these acts and these customs. And then to, in many ways, right, out of his faith and hearing the narrative of his faith, seeing God at work and being God incarnate at work in different ways, kind of being like, actually, no, everything I've been hearing, parts of it really miss the mark. And this is actually what we are to be about. Um, but how threatening that probably was for those who right, raised him and who he ate with and talked right about Torah with, um, for sure. For sure, for sure. So what's something I find interesting about this text, and Ben, we were talking about this earlier, of... Um, is that a lot of folks, um, and it's not a wrong interpretation whatsoever, it's definitely there, is that Jesus is making a statement about economics and about money, which is true. But, um, 100% true. But whenever you start looking at the Greek and the Hebrew Bible and the prophetic prophecy that Jesus is bringing back, Jesus is really damning the people in the temple <laughs> um, in a much more specific and particular way. Um, so whenever he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. It comes from Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah's famous temple sermon, in which he likens the people of Judah to robbers due to their multiple offenses against God, but specifically against neighbor. And it's not merely economic offenses, but in every way that the people of Judah have disregarded, not seen their neighbor as um, one of them to be loved, that the prophet Jeremiah is damning them. And so for Jesus to bring that back, so that's kind of what is in people's ear. Um, and so the problem is not so much that commerce occurs in the temple, though that is a piece of the critique, um, but really a lot of different scholars and thinkers on this text. The problem of why Jesus was so ticked off and so angry was the underlying assumption that temple geography and religious ritual and location and kind of the class in which those gathered and the cultural place and space in which those gathered found themselves thought that they were isolated from God's judgment um, and thought that they were isolated from the participation into what Christ was inviting them into right so it doesn't really we're cool God's cool we don't really have to care about our neighbor or about what Jesus is doing 
we're going to keep on selling our doves. Um, but that that is really what ticked Jesus off. And so, really, um, Jesus, I think, in flipping the table and in this anger and in this provocative act as he is heading toward the cross, it's kind of like one last ditch effort to try to save the people from themselves. To try to say, hey, we're all still, you all are all still really bound by your humanity. And like, I'm desperately trying to get you to wake up and to see how you are bound by different systemic structures um, and how God is, in, how I, how God are wanting to liberate you. Um, but I just found this language of, kind of insulating ourselves or thinking that we, that the people in the temple were sort of not even greater than, but kind of safe from judgment, um, how that really resonated with me. And so I'm curious to hear you all think about in what ways do you think we, or perhaps others in society, if you don't want to like go introspective or around our community, um, have insulated ourselves, kind of thinking that we're free from God's judgment, that like actually the damned are over there, right? Um, yeah, but in what ways do you think we, just like those in the temple in one way or another, might still be bound by the constructs of our humanity and these systems like economics, right, that we find ourselves to be a part of, um, that really Jesus is trying to flip the tables of our lives and wake us up to and say, actually, if only you knew what you're being invited into is so much greater. But yeah. I think, uh, when I think of back in my earlier days when I was con considering becoming a Catholic, that one of the things that I found most appealing about that religion was this enforced confession. Mm -hmm. This Thanks for that, Ellen. That we are, yeah. That whenever we forget the role of confession, how in some ways we forget that we, the robbers, are our people, and that God, right, that we are God's people. How important confession is. Thanks for that. Others, how do you think we've kind of insulated and isolated ourselves? Yeah, Clinton. I'll implicate us. Um, uh, so it's real easy, you know, on a daily basis to look at what's happening in the greater Christian community, the evangelical community, the, the main, like, you know, all these different places where a lot of bad stuff happens on a daily basis, less than I think probably everyone in this room would disagree with that, in a lot of cases. Um, it's real easy for me to look and be like, well, look at my awesome church. 
you're not this. But we are. We're part of the greater group. And it's really easy to forget that. But, like, I bear responsibility for this sense of that, too. If I'm going to call myself by this name, like, I I have to do something about it, even though I don't want to in any way. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. It's kind of like I um, had coffee a few weeks ago with um, someone, and rightfully so, extremely troubled and sickened like I am around um, the abuse that's happened and continues to happen within the Catholic Church and priest and um, and I think in many ways I was trying right to distance myself I am not Catholic I'm not a Catholic priest I'm a female pastor but like there's this distance and I think I often think about men in power who are pastors um, but had to kind of got convicted that like, no, actually, I'm still a religious leader, right? Um, and having to keenly be aware of um, how that implicates me in, in ways that perhaps I would rather separate myself from through my difference. Yeah. So thanks for that, Clinton. Any other thoughts about ways we insulated ourselves? I've um, come across some research that talks about like our social media live, mm. lives and how we have built echo chambers. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, even in, you know, with real relationships now that are starting to kind of blend in with social media, you're starting I see isolation, um, it's almost becoming artificial, mm-hmm. where you're not even really aware how isolated you are. Yeah. Um, it's really, you know, that digital platform, the, the digital platforms are designed to, you know, they incentivize people liking what you say and do and, 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 what you, and also what you like. And so, I, yeah, I just find it interesting, you know, to think about this kind of setup um, when it comes to our, our digital lives. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And like last week, I think um, Sarah Job, who was visiting, was talking about um, that you all were in David and talking about kindness, but really David, uh, it was this hesed of keeping covenant, right, with um, and how, what does it mean to keep covenant with, that part of bearing witness and reclaiming kinship is um, keeping covenant with those with whom um, you have the most to lose, or right, you have the most to disagree with, and they aren't the ones. <laughs> what does it mean to keep covenant with those who are not a part of your echo chamber, right? But like are have <laughs> been separated out, and you're kind of thankful that they have been, but also at the same time, like, oh wait, what does it mean um, to bear witness and reclaim kinship with them? Yeah. Um, so like I mentioned earlier this week, I was with 35 Baptist pastors, um, primarily in Cambridge, thanks to the Lilly Endowment, um, and we were engaged in conversations that matter. Um, and as part of the conference, we walked the Black Heritage Trail. Um, and so the Black Heritage Trail is a path in Boston, uh, winding through Beacon, the Beacon Hill neighborhood of Boston, and it... Um, 
And it takes you to 15 uh, really significant um, sites of um, portions of African-American history, kind of from the Revolutionary War through the Civil War into about the 1930s, um, before all African-Americans were basically pushed out of this neighborhood. And so, um, and they have sites along there um, like the first African-American Baptist church in this country. Um, and they have the Lewis and Hayden, Lewis and Harriet Hayden house, which was a key home um, during for the Underground Railroad. And what's interesting though about this trail is it follows, it tracks the Freedom Trail, which is really well marked. And this trail is not. Of the 15 sites that are on the trail, um, only two, maybe three, had markers naming um, in its original, right, like what this home, what this place was, and what it meant and continues to mean to so many. And on one of the signs, it was actually on the Lewis and Harriet Hayden home, on their house, these are all private residences now, but on that house, um, right next to the sign, uh, there is a large NRA sticker right beside it. And what's interesting about Beacon Hill is it was a thriving, for over 100 years, a thriving African-American community, and they all just got pushed out through like systemic laws, pushing people out. So we're now in Beacon Hill, only 2% of the residents are persons of color. The average home, the cheapest home you can purchase and buy in Beacon Hill is $900,000 for a studio. And we were walking this trail and just commenting on how many signs are absent in the history of how the history, is. Just people are trying to be erased in life and in death. And so people couldn't take times to mark their homes for the history and to name the larger narrative, but they could take a lot of time to have banners on what churches they were a part of and stickers, what schools their kids went to, um, what yacht club they were a part of. And as I was walking, I couldn't help but wonder what would happen if Jesus walked into Beacon Hill, right? Because it's kind of like an insulated neighborhood. What would happen if Jesus would walk into Beacon Hill? And then I started thinking to myself, what would happen actually if Jesus walked into Durham? Right? And the history um, that we are not telling and that we have erased. And it started to get me thinking about how what happens whenever I walk in these places and these spaces and feel enraged? Yet am I willing and bold enough to flip a table and say, hey, actually, we all need to continue to be saved from our humanity, right? Hey, actually, this is messed up. And it just like made me and our entire group of the 35 pastors from all across the country and all different kinds of Baptist, American Baptist, Progressive Baptist, National Baptist, Alliance of Baptist, Cooperative Baptist, and we all come back Right? And we're supposed, 
We're supposed to have a word, I guess, because we're pastors and normally we talk a lot. And it was silent. Because I think we all realized how each of us, in our own different ways in our society, we still desperately need to be saved from ourselves. And um, someone then shouted out, right, like a good pastor, I think it was one of the white men that was there, and, um, and he said, walking this trail made me think that we see, simply need to change the lurking suspicion that some lives matter less than others, that we are put on earth for a little space that we might learn to bear the beams of love. He goes on, he's quoting someone, and he goes on and says that, turns out this is what we all have in common. We're just trying to learn how to bear those beams of love in the world, but we've forgotten. And I think that those inside the temple and those inside Beacon Hill post-1939, when the last African-American church um, was kicked out, forgot and continues to forget that we are all bearers of beams of love. Um, And I think that maybe perhaps we, to get back to Clinton, right? And Jesus, I think, recognized this, that we are so connected and implicated in different systems that it's really, really easy to forget that truth. And so Jesus has to come and wake us all up and flip tables to shake us up, and to cause us to pause and for a moment hear the children remind us of who Jesus was and is and who we are. For the kids had not yet forgotten that they are those beams of love to any and all people. And that that... um, They don't have those systems, right? They don't have the hierarchies and the isms um, to separate us. And so, yeah, I just was really wishing that Jesus was in Beacon Hill and that Jesus would come back to Durham and flip some tables. And But then it got me wondering, like, well, maybe we're supposed to be flipping some tables too. But I want to hear from you. Like, what's scary for you about the fact that Jesus flipped these tables? And that Jesus was saying, hey, actually, no, when you think that you're saved and you're safe, um, when you think these systems are working for you just well enough, but not so well that you aren't like those people or you aren't like those people, um, that's actually when I'm going to come and flip a table. (laughs) But like, what's scariest for you about the fact that Jesus flipped tables in the temple um, to try to save us from ourselves? Yeah, Brian.
I think, Brian, you're right in that this text um, does not, it, sh- it should shake all of us up, right? That um, our ways of, kind of goes back to, when was this? The first, the first week of the series? No. Um, a few weeks ago of how often when we, um, Often when folks talk about God's liberation, right, we kind of have, can talk about God's liberation as, um, like, we're here, and then, like, there are other people that need to be liberated, but really they're going to be liberated by, like, being able to live more like we who have the right theological understanding or the right X, Y, or Z. Um, but really the liberation of God and the kingdom of God is God flipping the entire thing on the head all of us included. And so, um, yeah, I think that you are correct that Jesus, this flipping of the table, multiple tables, was saying that all things, all people, um, that redemption um, is possible and it's probably going to make all of us a little uncomfortable, right? How wide and expansive God's love and I think from this text, judgment really is. Any other? Like, what's scary for you about this scene or this table and Jesus flipping it and how we are kind of indicted in it? Or perhaps what's hopeful? That's not scary. What's hopeful? I think what is a little scary to me is just how in our culture we've figured out how to monetize everything. Like, mm-hmm. and I, maybe it's just me, but it's like 
almost every decision you make all day long has a financial aspect to it as opposed to a person aspect to it. And I see this as an indictment of that. Very much so, yeah. And just how our culture has been able to yeah. set itself up that way, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, right? We idolize and we know in many ways, probably, we interact more with financial interactions or like ways that our money is being spent some days than we even do another human being. And that we are to prioritize, right? Money and wealth and ex the exchange, even with people, right? Even in our relationships. It's like this, I have this, what can I give you and what can you give me and what's the exchange that's happening here rather than, what does it really mean just to like sit with and be with, or hear someone's story or how their day is, and like the how are you question actually being because you care and not because you think that's the appropriate polite exchange, right, that we've been taught to ask. Thanks for that, Phil. No, it is, um, yeah, we can't separate our, yeah. We can't separate this text, nor can we easily separate ourselves from the money and the implications of what Christ was saying around that. Any other thoughts? I was just thinking about what Brian had said, and it yeah. kind of relates to this, too. It's like our um, criteria and how we measure good and bad, mm -hmm. I think, will be part of the flipping. So, yeah. you know, like what we call good will not necessarily be good. What we call bad yeah. will not necessarily be bad. But I think will be forced to, which is part of the uncomfortableness, right? Yeah, for sure. Because we've been able to, you know, feel good about things or have motivation to do things based on how we kind of categorize. And I mm -hmm. think those categories might be all wrong. Yeah, thanks for that, Susan, that the categories might be all wrong. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And I, yeah. Were you sighing? Oh, no, I was just gonna speaking to that. Like, what, what makes me really nervous about this text is like the money changers and the people at the table selling doves were like doing a good thing. Like, yeah. they're helping people participate in the redemptive economy of God, right? Like, mm -hmm. these are people who would, the reason people were buying doves is to make a sacrifice. Like, they were buying doves because they didn't have access to other doves. Like, they didn't yeah. bring in a dove, they had to purchase one there. And, like, Oh, thank goodness people are there. That's their whole job, to make sure people can participate in this thing. Like, uh, how troubling would it have been to do something that's increasing access to this relative practice and then to, like, have your table flipped? Yeah. Thanks uh, for that. Yeah, no, it's true. And I worry about that for, like, yeah, my life. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Very much so. Yeah, there's some my house should be called a house of prayer. I wonder about the number of times in my life, the number of people I interact with on a regular basis who feel like they need something like a house of prayer, right? A place of reckoning with God. A place that is not about economic, like we're 
you're just so trained out of that way of thinking, there's something here Jesus showing up and like, you're like, well, we were helping these folks access this. He's like, you didn't get what you actually needed. You, you needed a thing that you didn't get. You totally devalued the one purpose of this whole thing. And I think, yeah. Yeah, I think um, it reminds me how I, I wonder if part of the invitation of this text and as we think about being a people to bear witness and reclaim kinship and what Jesus was doing in this text is that trying to wake, and also Rick, I'm like projecting, right, my human experience onto, um, but even in trying to do a good thing, like these folks who are selling the doves, and in trying to be a good religious person, and in this, that, and the other, these, it was like these acts and these ways of trying to save themselves, right? And trying to save ourselves. But really, what God invites us into is to create spaces to savor, to savor one another, to savor prayer, to savor God at work in the world, to savor space where we can pause and what does it mean to stop having everything be so transactional, to savor space to question and doubt and to talk about tables that need to continually be flipped, um, recognizing that we ourselves will not be the ones doing that saving. Um, But what does it mean uh, to go back to, yeah, Father Boyle in his book talks about we have been trained to become people that save, but the invitation of the gospel is merely to savor. And maybe that's why the kids could hear Jesus, right, and knew who Jesus was. Because I think as a child, you're still allowed to savor. Once you write your college essays, you've got to save. Yeah. Yeah, but what does it mean, right? Instead, to savor it. Yeah, it's true. It's very countercultural, right? It's not what we are taught or trained. We need an uneducation. We need an uneducation. Yeah, that'll preach. Um, yeah. So thanks, y'all, for talking about this text and Jesus flipping the table. Uh, we have one more table encounter next week um, that I'm looking forward to. Adam, take us into confession and absolution. Yeah, as I was reading this text, thinking about tables generally, and uh, just thinking about confession here, this this song, Cohen's Cohen's words, is a way for us to maybe confess. Uh, those moments where instead of flipping a table, we just left, or um, maybe we got up and left a table because somebody was sitting there that we didn't want to be at the table with, that scandalized our table. Uh, So... I'm out of the game 
I don't know the people in your picture frame. If I ever loved you, oh no, no, it's a crying shame. If I ever loved, if I knew your name, you don't need a lawyer. I'm not making a claim. You don't need to surrender. I'm not taking aim. I don't need a lover. No, no, no. The wretched beast is tame. I don't need a lover. So blow out the flame. There's nobody missing. There's no reward. A little by little, we're cutting the cord. We're spending the treasure. Oh no, no, that love cannot afford. I know you can feel it. The sweetness restored, and I don't need a reason for what I became. I've got these excuses; they're tired and they're lame, and I don't need a pardon. No, 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 no. There's no one left to blame. I'm leaving the table. I'm out of the game. I'm leaving the table. I'm out of the game. Shepherd is asleep where the willows weep. 
mountains are filled with lost sheep. Ring them bells for the blind and the deaf. Ring them bells for all of us who are left. And ring them bells for the chosen few who judge me when the game is through. And ring them bells for the time that flies, for the child that cries. Ring them bells for St. Catherine from the top of the room. Ring them bells from the fortress for the lilies that bloom. Oh, the lines, they are long and the fighting is strong. And they're breaking down the distance between right and Thank you, Adam, and all y'all for a good conversation around this text tonight. Thinking about what to say about this table, and yeah, like, Adam liked this confession choice, and Molly seconded it, and I was actually a little against it, because I'm like, wow, I mean, what more violent thing can you say at Emmaus Way than, I'm leaving the table. It may be open, but I'm not coming. So I was thinking a little bit about what would make us leave the table. Um, what would make this good news we talk about all the time seem like bad news? Uh, and I think, you know, it's the question that Father John Minsty, uh, in the guise of his Josh, yeah, Jay Tillman is, is asking when, if, if, we find the light coming in our dark door. Yeah, I mean, there's just this recognition. I, I, how many times do I just want to be in the dark, right? Like there's that beautiful, beautiful scriptural phrase, and they love the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Um, so what I, I think... The table looks like less good news when we find it lighting the things about us that we'd rather be dark. I think when we find ourselves with needs unfilled, when we find ourselves with reasons to repent, we find ourselves among the robbers, as Ellen says. We find ourselves in need of a house of prayer. Me? Oh, 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 me? I need, oh. And I think the table, it's, it's saying that to us. Among the good news it's telling is the good news is because we're in need of good news. Um, that, and we don't get to control who gets it. Uh, we don't get to control our own needs or who else's needs get filled. Who else is offered repentance? Who else is healed? And the table says all of that. Uh, and it says that the bells are ringing, not for me, not for you. The bells are just ringing. The heathen are involved. The saints are in there. There's poor folks. There's sheep. There's blind, deaf. Some are left. Some are gone. 
you can't, you can't leave this reality. It's all-encompassing. It's this beautiful Dylan-esque way of saying, like, it's only one thing. It's sounding, and you don't get to opt out of it. And it's that sort of table. It says exactly what we need, whether or not we felt like we needed it or not. And so that's the table I invite you to tonight. I invite you to pour wine or juice for each other, break bread or a cracker for each other. And when you listen to that name break on someone else's lip, ask myself, does that sound like good news to me? What would make the body of Christ broken for me, the blood of Christ shed for me, sound like good news? Why do I need that good news? Why would it be worth inviting someone else into good news like that? In what way is this table a place of welcome and also a house of prayer for me here tonight? So I welcome you to that table that we are so in desperately need of and that God has prepared for us.